0: And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Matt Bridges, pastor of St. John's United Methodist Church here in Santa Fe, who began his ministry here last July. Matt, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. It's an honour. Well, absolutely. It's wonderful having you here. And the topic that you chose today is a very powerful personal topic. You wanted to talk about addiction. So what was it that led you to want to talk about this? Well, you know, when I, when I first, uh,
1: sent an email about potential topics, um, that is one part that I put in there because it's, it's part of who I am, the, the past and the present and and also the future. And it's just an important part of my makeup. Um, I didn't think that I would, uh. Be saying that, <laughs> but it, but it really is. Um, it's it's who I am now uh, as a person in recovery and as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a friend. Um, it's it's just part of who I am, and so that's why I lifted it up as one of the maybe multiple topics that that we could have covered that I threw out there. Sure. Um, I, I, and, and, you know, it, it made me interested in it more when you responded with, you know, haven't had someone on the show talking about addiction or recovery or all of that in between. Yeah.
0: What is it, from your perspective, as someone who lives with or lived with addiction and who lives a spiritual life, what's the spiritual aspect of of addiction or what's the spiritual aspect of recovery yeah that's a great question
1: um how i've come to know that in my seven and a half years or so years of uh, sobriety is i would say for me it was and has been a progression from uh, uh spiritual bankruptcy to uh spiritual recovery um spiritual abundance and a a
0: brand new relationship uh with God what does that mean spiritual bankruptcy that's quite a phrase what does that mean yeah, to you? i i came to know that because
1: this you come to a point at least i did in addiction where you feel like every tank that you have that makes up who you are is running on empty. And the reason why I came to know that idea of like spiritual bankruptcy, which it's of course, I'm sure a phrase I've not coined, but how that meant to me was that at one time, you know, I could point to glimmers and times in my life where I felt the spirit as I understand that. And By the time I got to the end of my drinking, my last day of drinking, I felt so absolutely bankrupted that I had spent all of that, squandered all of that, given it away, and tried to replace it with just continual false things but nothing compares to that, that sort of currency. If we're going to use that analogy, nothing compares to that currency. And, uh, by the time that I was, you know, feeling spiritually bankrupt, it's truly that feeling of despair where you think, I don't know if I'm going to get this currency back. And not only that, you make, you make sort of a value (laughs) of it, of, I don't think I deserve to have this currency again. (laughs) Look what I've done with it. You know, by the day of my last drinking, by uh, the day that, golly, that my whole world changed in that way. You know, you're you're filled. (laughs) If everything else that's healthy is empty, What I was filled with was just so much continual guilt and shame. You know, uh, I, oh man, I, I hated everything about me. Wow. I I know that I had this genuine love for family and I, I still felt like I had this calling in some way in ministry, but even that was getting shaky just because you know, in the progression of addiction, because it didn't start that way. You know, if you would have told my 12 year old self that, you know, hey, this is where that's going. Mm -hmm. You know, I I probably would have still ended up in the same place, right? You do something for 19 plus years, uh, (laughs) you get good and bad at it, right? And so, you know, by that point in ministry, you know, because at this time, I'm, I'm on track to become <clears throat> an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, which is a really big deal. It's about an eight-year process, and I was supposed to be in my final three years, what's called a provisional process. And, you know, I would like dotted the I's and crossed the T's, and... You get to that moment, but at the same time, in the backstory behind that, while you're trying to do this you're you're getting up there and you have this these pastoral responsibilities, mm. you know it got to where it's like someone calls you pastor and it stings almost you know because you just hide until you can't hide, but you're trying to hide i mean you you get up there and do this amazing thing these amazing things that people are asking you to do as a pastor to get up and preach and teach the word of God you know is however we approach that and yet you know you are getting up there and and you're preaching and at the same time what's also welling up in you is this shame while you're trying to, right. <laughs> like, give some sort of coherent word. And then, you know, like, people are like, that was a good sermon, pastor. And you're,
0: thanks. So is there, was there a sense of leading two lives? Yeah. You know, I, I think,
1: and, and I, I don't want to do a disservice to, you know, that, that psychological concept of which I've not experienced but how, <clears throat> how I relate it and how I even think about it too is like, it's not like you're leading these double lives. It's not like you're leading, you know, multiple personalities and whatnot. Because one part of recovery is you have to take full responsibility and say, nope, this is me in every scenario. <laughs> right. It's more a matter, rabbi, of, Just hiding, you know, keeping that aspect secret, which you you can for a while and then you get discovered. And then it's like, okay, so that part's been discovered. I know that I'm not going to quit drinking. So I'm going to have to try harder this way. Okay, so the bad, you know, the cat's out of the bag. But I'm just going to show them that I'm only drinking this much when really I'm drinking, you know, so, so you start doing this negotiating and rationalizing. And for me at the end, even that played out and I didn't have anything left in that, you know, and why I can talk about it now is because I, I kind of, I, I have to, you know, there's, (laughs) there's no more hiding. I see. You know, right, <laughs> like, right. b- because that leads to, for me, that leads to death. Ultimately, I'll I'll, de- I'll destroy myself. I'll destroy whatever passion and career I want to have in ministry. I'll destroy my family and I'll hate it. Mm-hmm. I'll hate every second of it, but I'll do it. At least I've, that's my trajectory <laughs> so without recovery. It, it's fascinating <clears throat> for
0: you to describe, you know, how... Uh, in your journey to the ministry becoming more aware of this yeah. before we take our break how you know what you, you you spoke about that last day of drinking yeah what what was that day what what <laughs> changed on that day what was it that that caused that shift oh man that's a great
1: question um it, Multiple things. The the simple answer is that I was, uh, I I referred to it or I've come to know it in my life as that sort of uh, devastatingly liberating day. (laughs) Devastatingly liberating day, yes. Because at that point, I mean, I was 100% completely exposed, found out, nothing left. And, and consequently, it was supposed to be the day of my ordination. And uh, so <clears throat> that day was my ordination. It was, I mean, one of the most important days of my life, you know, with, with the day of my wedding, the day of my child being born. You know, these are the, the landmark days as you look across my life. And so on that day, um, I'd I, been trying so hard to not drink leading up to that. It's a big gathering of uh, of pastors, of, of clergy, of lay people. We call it an annual conference. And at the end of it, there is an ordination ceremony, and I was to be one of the ordinands. This was happening in El Paso, where I was serving as an associate pastor And so there were going to be a lot of people from the congregation there. The family is Mm. flying in. I mean, big deal. And so it was like, don't mess this up, Matt. You know, don't mess this up. And on that Friday morning, it was June 6, 2014, I woke up and my epiphany My clear, crystal clear thought that morning on the day of my ordination was, "I'm gonna drink today." (laughs) That's what's gonna get me through it because I'm a mess, and I just need to take the edge off. Because by that point in my addiction, it was maintenance drinking. It was, you know, you you drink because you can't show these other people that you're shaking that you, you know. So it's a mess. So that night, uh, the ordination ceremony, in front of all of these people, you uh, you stand before your bishop, you stand before uh, what's called district superintendents, and they lay hands on you, and they consecrate you, and they ordain you, which is a tradition in, in our community of faith that goes well back beyond the Methodist movement. It's you know the laying on of hands and consecrating goes back of course to centuries jo- to Joshua almost. <laughs> Yeah, right. yeah right. exactly right. yeah and and i'm supposed to have the uh, i'm supposed to have the gumption to be worthy of that right. what a truly humbling experience right well i was experiencing a different humbling and humiliating experience you see i was found out I was caught before the service, and and I was drunk. Mm-hmm. And this was after the. I promise I'll stop. Yes, I've stopped. I mean, you're out of all the excuses, out of all of it, and you and you're hurting people, and you feel awful about it because you love these people, but you can't get caught. But then I was, right. so 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 you're found out, and so instead of that humbling experience of being ordained and and truly supported and lifted up and loved. I find myself in my family, my parents, my wife, and we're sitting in a dingy waiting area at rehab, getting me checked in, which out of the two options of humbling experiences, that was my humbling experience of that evening. And that's what it, you know, that's what it comes back around to the spiritual bankruptcy. There was nothing left. I had nothing left to give. Uh, I I didn't know. You see, at that point, they didn't know what to do with me. I didn't know if I had a career in ministry ahead. My bishop and others, they didn't know if I had a career in ministry ahead.
0: You know... uh, so it was it's just an, us it's an extraordinary moment that you shared and a very very profound moment oh, yeah. we have to take a break okay. we'll come back and explore this this spiritual dimension of this because it, it's so powerful and so important especially for so many of our listeners so you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe my guest this evening Matt Bridges Pastor of St. John's United Methodist Church here in Santa Fe and we'll be back after this break. You're back listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Matt Bridges, pastor of St. John's United Methodist Church here in Santa Fe. And Matt, before the break, you were, you've were you been sharing such a personal, you've been opening up so much about your your journey through spiritual bankruptcy to spiritual abundance, through from exploring the spiritual consequences of your own addiction of your own of your own drinking you you once described to me how addiction and drug of choice becomes a a form of false idol worship where even where the deity is hated what what does that mean to you
1: yeah so it comes down to you know (laughs) what makes a false idol uh I I think that, I think it was uh, Walter Brueggemann who just, I remember so simply, I I think he put it, uh, you know, any false idol was just, it started out as the God that somebody wanted. Mm. And there was a time in my life that I wanted alcohol and wanted more of it. From the very start, you know, this idea in a lure of alcohol was something that you did fast, behind the scenes. You got as much of it into you as you could, so you could go on to do the next thing because you needed that effect. Well, what is a false idol? It is something that we give our devotion to, our time to, our fidelity to, our finances to. I mean, it drives us. And you know, for a while, it's like alcohol for the reason why you want it, it works. It
0: right.
1: does what it's supposed to. I heard another one, uh, someone, uh, uh, a speaker a long time ago, and he described it. Uh, you know, alcohol, what it did for him was it, it numbed everything out. It quieted all the voices and chaos in his head. But then eventually it has this adverse effect. He called it an opposite effect. But by that time, by the time that whenever it starts really causing the destruction and amplifies all of the craziness and voices, there's a very different dynamic to it. And that's the physical, psychological, chemical, emotional addiction to it that comes with it. And that's kind of what starts breeding that helplessness and, and desperation. And um, when you're in that point,
0: you have an idol that you're worshiping. And when you're sharing that, you're clearly, I, I, I want to emphasize this, you're not saying to listeners who may be alcoholics or addicts, you're not saying you are idolaters, you are, you're not in an angry way, judgmental way, are you? You're, you're sharing this in a very different way, right?
1: Yeah, if, if you take a look at what makes an idol, um, you're putting your hopes into it. You're putting your trust into it. And there are other parts of your rational brain that, should, that tell you there's no reality to, that this is going to have hope in you, that this is going to give you the real courage that you need. You know, I know for me, there's no reality to any commercial I ever watch with alcohol in it, you know, right? (laughs) which consequently, if you look at commercials, uh, none of them are drinking. They all just hold it. Uh You know, there's no concept of that for me. There's, there's a concept of that for my first sip, (laughs) but then we're off to the races and it's a very different experience. It's not me sipping a martini. Right, right. It's finding the cheapest alcohol with the highest alcohol content, right? That's Right, right. But but at the same time, part of your brain will say, but that's that's the ideal and that's what I'm doing, that's what I want to achieve. Or, you know, it I'm speaking from my experience. Of course. You know, <laughs> the reason why I'm an alcoholic is because I'm an alcoholic. You know, oh, why do you drink? Well, you know, I'm bored. Oh, I'm really busy. Oh, I'm tired. Oh, I'm amped up. Oh, you know, the sun's out today. Oh, you know, it's cloudy. We drank. Right. <laughs> I drank. I made it an idol. It had to be part of my life.
0: We've only got about five minutes of the show left, and I'm, I'm so moved by what you're saying and what you're sharing and the importance for so many listeners of this one of, the, one of the aspects of Alcoholics Anonymous is maintaining personal anonymity at the level of press, of radio, and, and films. Yeah. So why is it that you have chosen not to be anonymous about this?
1: Well, part of it goes back to what I said before. Um, I, I just don't incorporate any sort of hiding into my sobriety. I I, I do try to, it's not like, you know, I'm, hi, I'm Matt and I'm a nut, you know, to anybody, I meet and and things like that. I mean, if it comes up, I'm ready to talk about it. And part of it is um, because for me, programs of recovery helped save my life. Helped start pouring in and filling in and replenishing a genuine spiritual currency. And I'm, I'm a big believer in recovery programs. Um, I don't just limit, you know, what I support to other, you know, like, Oh, there's only one way. There's only one program. And no, I just, I know what has helped me so much. It has helped me in my personal life in my professional life, in my spiritual life, in my pastoral life, whether, uh, it's my sponsor or sponsees, whatever that looks like. And so, you know, I I do speak into this microphone right now with yeah a little bit of trepidation because um, that is a that is a tradition. But at the same time, one part of my vow in my ordination, which did happen, right, right, <laughs> due to God's grace uh is that along any sort of line pastorally or professionally or personally I want to be accessible and I want to help others be accessible and and, and I want to help other people who are suffering from addiction from active addiction I want to help people who are suffering from past addiction but not getting not getting back on track in a spiritual way too I want to help in any way that I can. And so sometimes I do feel um, that though my hands may or should be tied in some ways, I think it's better for me personally if I'm just open and transparent about it no matter what. What it's shown me is that it's made me more accessible to help people and for them to continue to help me. Mm. Because that's that's what it is. You know, it, if I'm to share experience, if I'm to share strength and I'm to share hope in anything dealing with addiction and recovery, it's that I need people who I share an affinity with in that way. And, and we need each other because we help each other develop better tools in sobriety things that may seem very basic to those who don't suffer from addiction but you know uh in in recovery what i have found is a spiritual bankruptcy to a a spiritual abundance and that's made me better at anything that i could ever approach in life And it's made me accept myself and the world around me a
0: whole lot better. I think you coming here this evening and sharing what could have been a very personal, you know, insular story, sharing that to a a, a global audience is is an extraordinary thing. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way at all. (laughs) My hope is that anyone who is listening to this show, who is currently wrestling with addiction, may hear your story, may hear of how programs of recovery helped save your life, helped you find, helped you move from a place of spiritual bankruptcy to spiritual abundance, and think... Maybe I can do that, too. Maybe I can find the strength to do that, too. Maybe people who are listening will hear some of the, the cues that you've said, you know, being discovered, making the excuses, you know, all of those things, and suddenly recognize that in themselves. Or even perhaps those who are wondering if a loved one or someone they know suddenly might start to think, oh, they have a problem and maybe I can help. And so my, I so appreciate you coming here and hopefully helping save lives, helping our listeners, vulnerable listeners, appreciate that this can affect anyone and that there can be ways through this to a place of spiritual abundance.
1: Yeah, and, you know, what I've found in spiritual abundance, you know, I'm still wrestling with that word sometimes too, because, I mean, there, there there is so much room to add more spirituality in my life, you know. Because one thing is a great trigger is thinking that you've got it made, right? right. So maybe maybe
0: maybe the next show, next time you you uh, hopefully I'd love to have you back on the show and, yeah, and talk sure. about other aspects of your life which are the spiritual abundance yeah that'd be awesome so (laughs) thank you thank you so much to matt bridges pastor of saint john's united methodist church here in santa fe and for all our listeners who may have been personally affected by this show we encourage you to reach out to clergy to medical professionals to family to support networks so that you can also receive support and move to a place of spiritual abundance. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.